and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Friday, June 18th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this, although this week I certainly hope not. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, everybody. Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, Julie. Later in this episode, we'll play my interview with Andy Slavitt, former CMS administrator, lately of President Biden's COVID response team, and with a cool new book because he hasn't been busy enough with everything else. But before that, the news. We finally have the news we health nerds have been waiting for. And the reason that we are taping on Friday this week, the Supreme Court on Thursday upheld the Affordable Care Act again. And I will add kind of smugly, they did it in the way I first predicted, by not even getting to the merits of the case. Who wants to explain what happened here? In a 7-2 decision, the court ruled that the conservative state officials and the individuals who had sued saying that the individual mandate no longer a tax because it's not collecting revenue after having been zeroed out by the 2017 Republican tax overhaul, did not actually have standing to bring this lawsuit. They dismissed the case, so they didn't just, you know, remand it back to a lower court. They said remand and dismiss. So this is really, you know, the third time that the Supreme Court has upheld the ACA. You know, they didn't actually get to the constitutional questions at the heart of this case. But from a policy logistical perspective, it really means that nothing is changing from the ACA as it currently stands. I would argue that they sort of got to the merits in that they were saying that they didn't have standing because without the penalty, the tax penalty, remember what the case was about, whether the law was now unconstitutional because Congress took zeroed out the tax penalty. The justice said, well, without the tax penalty, nobody was hurt. Nobody was required to do anything, and therefore they didn't have standing. But also, one would assume that if they did have standing, they would have said, but there's no injury here. I would have thought that if they had gotten to the merits, it would have gone pretty much the same way. Julia, they got to the merits by saying there were no merits. Right, exactly. (laughs) They just, they said... Get this case out. They remanded it. Technically, they remanded it to the lower court with an order saying... And don't send it back. Dismiss it. They just said, bye. We don't want to see this again. But they also did it in a technical, not ideological way, by addressing, or a non-political way, by addressing standing, which is a legal technicality, and making it go away on standing, they really did not get into the politics of Obamacare. Right, so, and they didn't which, have to, right. which is and, why it was 7-2, just right. why, you know, Clarence Thomas joined in the majority opinion. Right. I mean, um, none of us thought they were going to throw out Obamacare. We all thought that they would either do standing or that they would get rid of the mandate, which is now has no money in it anyway, or they would just let the whole law stand. I mean, they were so overtly anti this case and their oral arguments where they're normally quite obtuse, they were making it really clear that they thought it was a ridiculous legal argument. And they made it really clear. So, you know, could they have done something unexpected last minute? Yes. But was it likely? There was less suspense in this case than there were in the prior two cases. I was starting to get worried, though, because it was 
it took so long that if I, you know, I think the general consensus was is that if they were going to dismiss it on standing, they were going to do it back in February or March. And that the fact that they were waiting until June suggested maybe they were having arguments over things and maybe they were, you know, I never thought they were going to invalidate the whole law, but I thought it was possible they would do what the original Trump administration Justice Department request was, which was if they found that without the penalty, the mandate was unconstitutional, then the things that were directly connected to the mandate, which include protections for people with pre-existing conditions, might also have to fall. And I was starting to get a little bit nervous that they might do that. I mean, I'm not surprised that they dumped the case by saying that nobody had standing, but I'm surprised that it took them until June to dump the case because they said nobody had standing. They do the big cases at the end. I mean, they, and that's partly because they really want their language to be right. There may have been something going on with Clarence Thomas, who um, agreed but didn't agree with everything. I mean, he was part of the seven, but he wasn't. He didn't agree with everything the other six did. So they, there may have been some back and forth there. Alito wrote a very long uh, his dissent, yes, where he said he would have struck down the whole law. Right. So uh, I mean, I, I think that they do tend to do their bigger cases toward the end of the, and I think part of it is. They sort of like the drama, but part of it, I think they also spend a lot of time polishing and writing and, you know, refining and modifying with one another. And I just think it's, you know, you know, how often do you do something before your deadline? <laughs> Not very. So is this the last time we see the Affordable Care Act at the Supreme Court? I remind you, there is still another, though lesser suit out there challenging the ACA's preventive care mandate. And it's in front of Texas federal Judge Reed O'Connor, the judge who initially struck down the Affordable Care Act in this latest suit. Um, And Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who led the Republicans in this effort, even though he himself is under indictment, said on Twitter, he is not done fighting the law. So more to come. On the healthcare industry side, I think, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of anxiety this time around, but I think you know, it does kind of leave all these legal questions unresolved. And obviously, the political dynamic debate has changed um, over the past 10 years, um, as we've all seen. And, you know, the parties are going to have to find their way forward on that. But it didn't give, you know, a definitive severability doctrine or precedent or anything. So I think it, it does, you know, leave the door open. But I think in generally, the industry at least is breathing a sigh of relief. Yes, I mean, that's the, you know, last time, as somebody pointed out, in the first go round, at least the business community, it was NFIB was the lead plaintiff trying to strike down the law. But obviously, it's become a major part of the healthcare system, hospitals and doctors and insurance companies. I mean, everybody really did not want to see it struck down. It would have been an unholy mess. Um, chaos is the word that I kept using. Um, so, so where do the Republicans go from here? They've gone to town on trying to to get this law invalidated in some way, shape or form or repealed and replaced, even though they've never agreed on a replacement. Are, are they going to move to other things? They don't have. I mean, I've written about this a couple of times, starting with the Becerra confirmation hearings, and I wrote about it again yesterday. Well, briefly, I do think there'll be more litigation around the ACA, but not an existential challenge. They'll, they'll you know, fight this, they'll fight that. But I mean, the law is, this, this court made it really, seven to two on a conservative court. They're not going to strike this law. Are we going to see the preventive care? Are we going to see women's health? Are we going to see you know, bits and pieces, yes, and Republicans will pick and choose and make some fights. But I, I think the litigation door is pretty closed for major things. For Republicans, being opposed to Obamacare was more than a political message. It was part of their identity. If you, you know, it was just, 
you know, talk about the health law being baked into the system. I mean, the, the opposition to the health law was baked into the Republicans. And there's really a void there. I mean, you know, they can, they're going to talk about costs, but they don't really have a solution, and nor do the Democrats. They're going to talk about transparency, and they're going to talk about freedom, and they're going to talk about choice, and they're going to talk about socialized medicine, and they're going to fight the public option if that even moves. But I don't think they have yet figured out what their message is. And I think right now is healthcare other than yesterday, because the court is healthcare the biggest domestic story? I mean, the pandemic still is, but the national conversation right now, there's other things that are the racial justice, the voting rights, the infrastructure. Does that make healthcare it goes away? No, healthcare never goes away. Healthcare always comes back. So the Republicans are going to have to come out with some kind of message to fill that void. But the other thing, remember, the big, the next big test perhaps is going to be what to do about the subsidies. Biden and the Democrats increased and restructured and enlarged, but it's for two years. They'll probably have some kind of showdown about that before 2022 elections. Perfect segue into my next question, which is with this latest ACA fight sort of behind us, um, we want to turn to happenings on Capitol Hill. Um, Things are looking bleaker for a bipartisan infrastructure package, which means we're seeing more discussion about a Democrats-only package that could include making those temporary ACA subsidies permanent and possibly expanding Medicare to cover more services and more people. Um, Which of these are we most likely to see, if any, in the, the package that's just starting to take shape. I think it's pretty unclear right now, to be perfectly honest. Like Democrats are talking about a lot of different health priorities that they'd like to include in in reconciliation instructions as part of a budget resolution, you know, lowering the Medicare age, expanding Medicare benefits to cover vision, dental and hearing care, allowing for price negotiations for prescription drugs. The subsidies will probably end up in there. President Biden has asked for that, but they're working with such small majorities that, you know, House Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmouth wouldn't even commit to these being in, which Bernie Sanders in the Senate are saying they're definitely going to be in. I think that you'll end up seeing something, assuming that they do are able to, you know, muscle through a reconciliation package, but it's really hard to say what exactly. I mean, price negotiations, is a pay for. So that would imply that if they're going to do something else, they will include that to sort of get that, what, half a trillion dollars or so um, to help finance it. But yeah, it's going to be a very interesting, you know, next month and a half to sort of see where they sort of end up prioritizing in the healthcare space, kind of as, you know, was mentioned earlier. It's not necessarily like the top priority as they're sort of putting this package together for President Biden and a lot of other Democrats. They basically have to negotiate everything for what will Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema vote for? Yeah. And, you know, Manchin and Sinema are not yet committing, even if there is sort of a smaller bipartisan, like truly infrastructure package. They're not saying like, we'll definitely commit to a budget reconciliation package. So yeah, it'll definitely be interesting. And on the House side, similarly, they only have what, like four or five votes. I don't remember the exact number with new people getting sworn in all the time, but it's a handful. It's a handful. So, you know, anyone who really wants to flex their muscle in this, which I think we're seeing a little bit on both, you know, the moderate Democrats and the progressive Democrats, both suggesting that they will flex their power on this. So that's going to make it even more difficult. So that whole thing about Democrats in array didn't last very long. Evidently not. They forgot the necessary syllable, dis. 
Yeah, right. Rachel, you want to say something? Yes. Yes. So I think like Democrats have been grappling with this challenge since really kind of the, I think kind of blew up around the joint congressional address that Biden did a couple months ago. And while there is a lot of rhetoric right now, there's a lot of letters, lots of noise. Like I think there is like the sausage making process going on right now where, you know, the committees of jurisdiction are doing the work and they are trying to figure out what they can, you know, get through. And as we've seen kind of this conversation take shape over this week, it's still very fluid, but if they are going to do one big reconciliation package with everything President Biden has asked for, this is the boat before midterms. You know, you kind of have to get on. So I think it's going to hurry up and wait. I think that work is going on behind the scenes in conversations. I think I am most closely watching the Medicare benefits expansion of like vision, hearing, dental. You know, it's something that Senator Ron Wyden is very passionate about. And he has a very powerful position on the finance committee and something that's popular. Like it would actually have a tangible benefit for people that some of these other policies, it's kind of unclear. And then it all comes back to how much money, you know, whatever they can get done on drug pricing saves. And they have some really serious hurdles there too. So I think it'll be a big fight, but not necessarily the one kind of that's the top story, but it'll certainly be the story for us and, you know, people who are watching um, healthcare. Yes, we will. We, we will not be lacking for things to talk about. Well, I want to I want to revisit last week's top story, which was the FDA's approval of aducanumab, a very expensive drug to treat Alzheimer's disease that may or may not work. As predicted, the backlash has been pretty fierce. Here are a couple of headlines from opinion pieces this week uh, in The Washington Post. It said the FDA is in desperate need of some soul searching from the New York Times, the FDA has reached a new low. From CNN, new Alzheimer's drug sets dangerous precedent. Why are so many people so upset about this drug? It costs a whole lot of money and it might not work. In a nutshell, the FDA ignored the advice of its own advisors, three of whom so, so far have stepped down. We went into this in a lot of depth last week. I mean, that's in a nutshell. $56,000 a year plus PET scans, plus doctor's office administration costs because it's an infusion. Patients will have to pay 10% of the cost. It's not something you just take once for a few weeks and they're done. It's going to be years or maybe the rest of your life. It's just an enormous amount of money with really uncertain data. People are mad. I didn't realize until I read some of these pieces that 40% of people in the clinical trials had side effects. And the side effects are things like brain swelling. That's why you need the Pet the scans. scans and stuff is to, to make sure that, yeah. Which insurance, which Medicare doesn't cover currently. I mean, this is a big have and have not. I mean, Medicare covers everybody over 65, but... These, these additional costs are going to make it a haves and have not issue. Not everybody who has dementia is going to be able to afford this drug. And there are just a lot of questions about whether it works. And the whole controversy about Janet Woodcock, who was the acting FDA commissioner, who was Biden's favorite and may still be Biden's favorite. But she's taken a lot of flack, even though she tried not to be the face of this. She's the acting commissioner. And whether she's the face of it or in public, she's the face of it. And it is odd. I mean, it's the middle of June and there's no nominee to head the FDA. Someone finally got around to asking HHS Secretary Becerra about that this week and he just sort of demurred. So it doesn't sound like it's imminent either. Um, I've just I can't remember seeing the FDA under this much heat for 
a drug approval. I mean, there was a little bit of this. They they approved a really expensive muscular dystrophy drug a couple of years ago that's even more expensive than this drug. It costs something like a million dollars, but there are very few patients. Right. right, exactly. There's few patients for whom that drug would go. Anyway, this is a drug that literally millions of people, most of them on Medicare, could be eligible for, and we don't know if it works. And in a lot of cases, it can cause harm. And I think people are appalled. And whoever gets nominated at the FDA, I think it's going to get an earful. And I did notice that Janet Woodcock is going to be on the Hill next week testifying about, I think, vaping. Um, But that should be a very interesting hearing to watch because I'm sure that there will be a lot of non-vaping questions for her. One thing that I have found sort of interesting about this Alzheimer's drug is like, obviously, it's coming in the middle of like a big drug pricing debate on Capitol Hill. It's a disease that, you know, affects so many people. And you would think members would probably be hearing about this from their constituents. And it doesn't really seem like that's quite affected this debate just yet. You know, the HR3 wouldn't really do much for this particular drug, at least at first. Um, So it's really interesting to sort of see how this is such a big deal, but it's not even quite permeating that debate yet, it seems. Yeah, Politico had a really good story about how that we're hearing, you know, from all the people who are complaining about this, we are not hearing uh, from many members of Congress because they're caught in between this, you know, rock and a hard place of their constituents who are desperate for Alzheimer's treatments and the fact that this costs so much money. But I do think that some of them will have some choice words for uh, the acting FDA commissioner at this hearing next week. And-, and the one thing I wanted to point out is the FDA vacancy is obviously, we're almost in July, you know, when people were saying, and you know, February 3rd, there's no FDA commissioner. No, I mean, I wasn't so worried about it. It's pretty normal in February. She's, a, you know, before these recent controversies, she was sort of doing what needed to be done as an acting in, in those first few weeks or a month or two. But we're still coming out of a pandemic. We're still dealing with vaccines. We're still dealing with boosters. We're still dealing with therapeutics. We are not out of an emergency. We're much, much, much better. But and, and the world also relies on us for some of that science. So it's a huge visible vacancy, but we should also note there's a whole lot of other vacancies at HHS that aren't quite as high profile as the FDA commissioner, but you know, there, there's no one running Medicaid yet. There's no name for Medicare. There's the community health, the agency that runs the community health clinics, the agency that runs the Obamacare exchanges. I mean, there's just a lot of, and it's not just in HHS, it's other departments as right. well. Right, so although... I will say that the position above that, that the head of CMS, only did get filled, what, two, three weeks ago. Yes, but, so. but she was nominated a couple of months ago. And if they've got names queued up, there's still some uncertainty about who's getting what. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about COVID. Um, the good news is that cases here in the U.S. continue to fall, although mostly in places where the vaccine uptake has been high. Uh, the bad news is that the U.S. topped 600,000 COVID deaths this week. Um, so in a lot of the previously hard hit places, there are no more mask or social distancing mandates. But we are starting to see some employer vaccine mandates. And down in Houston, an important court decision upholding a vaccine mandate for hospital employees, apparently the first time. Uh, someone has sued over a mandate on a product with only experimental FDA approval. Now it appears that the nurses who sued are appealing. So my question is, will this embolden employers to go ahead and impose mandates now, or will they wait for full approval and or a resolution to this dispute? Where are we with the vaccine mandate issue? 
I think they're going to be more likely to see them first or widespread in healthcare settings. And although there's litigation in Houston, there are some other health systems that have imposed them without litigation, at least yet. There are precedents for flu. It's not identical because this is an emergency authorization and flu is a regular approval. With the flu, the, the usual thing was if you don't take the flu shot, you can't fire them, but that you can require all sorts of extra safety precautions. Like wearing masks. More than that. I mean, they had yeah, to wear, they I had know. to be geared up all the time. So, so what kind of compromises some health systems do. I mean, I think the first place you will see them on a, on a larger scale is going to be in health settings. But it also that EUA isn't going to last much longer because it probably will, Pfizer first and then Moderna will probably get formal, reg, you know, quote, regular approval fairly soon. So that particular argument goes away. And I think it'll make it easier for employers to mandate something that is a, has standard approval rather than an emergency authorization. Our newsroom at this point is not going to, I think they're strongly encouraged, and I'm not quite sure of all this. We're not back in the office yet, not till September, so exactly what it looks like then, I don't know. But I don't, talking to my friends who are not journalists, I don't know of people who have, uh, teachers someplace, I don't think, I'm not sure if the teacher's been mandated yet. They're certainly strongly encouraged. Dorms, students are, uh, universities are. I think you're right. It's mostly healthcare facilities and congregate living. Um, so universities and I'll be interested to see sort of how this plays itself out, um, you know, now that, that we've, we've gone from the everybody who wants it desperately to the let's see if we can encourage people with donuts or free joints or lotteries, basically, to the OK, now you have to do it. Um, I, I've, I've been sort of interested in the behavioral economics, sort of how how this has worked to see, um, you know, but I guess I'm surprised that it's June and that, you know, how many millions of people have gotten this shot and people really aren't dying from it. I mean, this is not like the Alzheimer's drug. There are not a lot of serious side effects to, to, these, to these vaccines. And yet there are still people who seem to be worried about the safety and, you know, seeing stuff on social media that suggests that, you know, well, it's still experimental. It's like millions, hundreds of millions of people have gotten the shot with no ill effects. I, I get the power of, I don't want to do it. Well, rare, rare, ill, rare ill effects. Yes. I mean, there have yes. been some. There have been some. I mean, there have been the blood clots. But right. in general, but generally, right, generally. I was going to say one other industry where I think there is some requirement is hospitality. I'm attending a wedding this summer that the venue itself, I'm attending weddings where like, the bride and groom have asked people to be vaccinated, but I'm also attending at least one where the venue is saying, like, you either need to show a test, a negative test from within 48 hours or a picture of your vaccine card. So I think that's another, you know, places that are hosting these big events, I think, are probably a bit nervous about liability as well. Right. But there's a difference. You're giving someone a choice. You can get, go get a test or you could still not a vaccine mandated. I mean, I think I think we'll see all sorts of kinds of arrangements when offices do open more. You know, I think some of them will keep masking rules because they don't want to ask who's vaccinated and who isn't. Some might just say if you're not vaccinated, you, you know, yes, you have your job and you'll get your paycheck, but you need to stay at home and work. There may be really big offices that can have a vaccinated section and an unvaccinated section. I mean, I don't I think there are all sorts of permutations that people are still thinking through. And obviously, employers desire is a high vaccination rate because it saves them all sorts of problems. And it's the way out of this thing. I think um, there are already sports venues that literally have vaccinated sections and unvaccinated. Yeah, sections. I think a lot of baseball stadiums do. Yeah. And, and then they're yeah. outdoors. Yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> You know, Yankee Stadium was not only having vaccinated and unvaccinated, I think it was Yankees, um, 
But they also, you could, if you weren't vaccinated, they were doing them in the parking lot. <laughs> yes, that was also common. Right. Hey, whatever it takes. It used to be a fly ball. <laughs> That's right. I wonder if they give you a baseball, too. All right. That is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Andy Slavitt. Then we will come back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Andy Slavitt, who just a few days ago was helping run the Biden administration's COVID response effort. And because Andy hasn't been busy enough, he has a new book out called Preventable. Thank you for joining us, Andy, and nice to see you. Great to see you. Uh, I think the last time we talked to you for the podcast was when you were launching the United States of Care for our listeners who don't see you as often as I do, at least in a Zoom box. Tell us what you've been up to the last couple of years and how you came to write this book. Well, you know, unlike most people, I've lived through a pandemic the last year and a half. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I like everybody else. I lived through a pandemic. See, these are my funny jokes. You, you'll they just talk through about the book. Um, after I left the Obama administration, I ended up starting a couple of initiatives to focus on how to get all Americans covered and to invest in underserved communities in health cares and, and try to address health equity issues. Spent some time trying to save the ACA from being repealed. And launched a podcast called In the Bubble. So I was busy with plenty of things. And when the pandemic hit, you know, I really, um, like a lot of us, got absorbed into figuring out how to help. And probably unlike most people, I called Jared Kushner and Deborah Burks and others. So I had a kind of an insider's view and some to some extent of what was going on during the pandemic and spent a lot of time vocal and visible and trying to be helpful with states, with the White House, et cetera. So that's a lot of largely what the book is about. And then, of course, as you said, uh, January 20th, I went into the Biden administration to do five months to help lead the COVID response. And you were never intending to stay, right? People right. were asking, like, why is Andy Slavitt leaving? I said, I think this was only a short-term gig. There's a designation called a short-term government employee, which you're legally not permitted to stay for more than 130 days. And actually, that's what it took for me to be persuaded to go in because my wife and I had just moved and I really couldn't be away. Plus, as Ryan Klein said to me, at the end of 130 days, we're either going to have figured this thing out or we're going to be in real trouble. So we need you now and we will get through this fast if you come in now. So anybody who's paid even the slightest attention to public health over the past two decades or so knew that a pandemic at some point was basically inevitable. How were we still so underprepared for this? Well, on one level, I think people who paid attention to public health is the key phrase in your question. I think we've kind of long considered ourselves above many of the world's problems because we're a wealthy nation, because we've been able to avoid this for so long. We live in a state of general luxury, although with a lot of inequality. And so we see the world's problems and until they happen to us, we don't really think they can happen here. So we, we underinvested not just in public health infrastructure perpetually, we also, I think a lot of the things that kind of came to define our society made it hard for us to react well. We've become more divided. Uh, we've become more unequal. We've become more fixated on our divisions and distrusting of science. So those things were kind of a bad stew before you even put it in place, kind of who was president of the United States at the time. 
I would say, you know, last year, of course, was about the pandemic, but it was also very much about inequality and, you know, how sort of people at the bottom were much more hard hit than than people at the top who could, you know, sort of pack up and move out to the countryside and quarantine. And then, of course, we had George Floyd. And I was taken by something that you noted in the book, which is that countries that were more equal did better than countries that were more unequal, that it wasn't necessarily richer versus poorer or industrialized versus not industrialized. That was not a distinction that I had really sort of considered before that. Yeah, the sense of kind of, is there a really palpable common good in your society? So, you know, if you live in a country that where you're willing to pay a little more tax in order for people at the bottom to have support, you also live in a country where you're more inclined to wear a mask if asked because it helps other people, even if you feel it infringes on your personal liberties. Whereas here, I think we, we've come to prize um, what we believe to be our rights and our liberties, uh, which is, which is a you know, a reflection of the character of the country. And there's a lot of positive to that. But in a crisis, it became very clear that once the CDC and our response failed, the only way we'd keep each other alive was by an amount of focus on these public health measures that required, you know, much more sacrifice. And we're not a country that, you know, my my grandmother lived through a 10-year depression and a six-year world war you know, she didn't have coffee for like months at a time. If I go morning without my dark roast at Starbucks, I get cranky. So we're just accustomed to a different standard of expectation. And I think other parts of the world, perhaps that wasn't so much the case. We've always looked to leadership to sort of help us as a country and to unify us and, you know, sort of war effort kind of things. I I feel like this was not a case where leadership showed itself very well. Well, except that the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, who did call for a sacrifice of older people. It was very much a, I think Beto O'Rourke said it to me, and it's in the book, he said, who exactly is he asking to die? Because if you don't get paid by the hour, if you get paid a salary and your job is secure and you can get Amazon delivery and you've got a house big enough to spread out in, you're a lot safer. And I think the moment when some Americans realized that it was mostly black and brown people and older people, some people said, hey, why are we actually still so obsessed with this pandemic? And I don't know a lot of people that have died from COVID. When people would say that to me, and there's this passage in the book where someone says to me, I don't know anybody who's died from COVID. And I said, you do know people who died from COVID. It's the people who grow your food. It's the people who deliver your food. It's the people who work in the meatpacking plants and the grocery stores. You may not know their names, but they're very much part of your life. And it was this sort of invisibility made it a little bit easier for all of us to ignore. Now that, at least for some of us, the pandemic is being put in the rearview mirror, I mean, are there lessons that you think we actually learned as opposed to the lessons we should learn? You know, we live in a great country with flaws. And if we don't talk about our flaws and address them in a dialogue, not in a fashion which says, let's pass a bill or let's hire a commission, but in a way that says, how do we do even better? How do we make our country work even better? Then, you know, we do repeat mistakes. Uh, One thing that I think I'm quite confident because I was talking with him at the time that President Biden set out to demonstrate is that when we pull together, we can do great things. We can overcome even really big challenges, but we have to have the will. We have to have the plan. We have to work together. And I think 
you know, the beginning of his administration, as certainly as it relates to the pandemic response, was in many ways a call to unity, which at this point in time in our country is one of the hardest calls to make. And it doesn't mean that everybody gets on board. Um, but what it does mean is that the, we can use the bully pulpit to make people feel supported. We can pass legislation in Congress, which give people better safety net. So we need to do those things because I worry less about the next pandemic than I do about what happens by going back to the old way of doing things. So, you know, it became very clear during the pandemic to many people who didn't know it, how many kids needed to go to school to get lunch, that they couldn't have lunch without that, and that they didn't have internet at home and they couldn't study. Well, those things were true before the pandemic. They were true during the pandemic. And it's entirely up to us as to whether they'll be true after the pandemic. I was sort of maybe naively hoping that this would wake up the country about the state of our healthcare system. Um, I'm not sure it did. Do you think that, that this will change anything about how we deliver healthcare going forward? Well, there is a chapter in the book about the folly of the free market pandemic. And it's actually a part of the book that I'd be really interested in your feedback on because it takes a view of the healthcare system really as as a banking system as as much as it is anything else a giant complex financial web where patients are really no longer the center we're sort of an afterthought and it's really the money that flows through the system that is what motivates people and those forces as you know as well as anybody i know um, are very hard to reckon with so there may be forces of change that come up every now and then and there may be moments when we realize how inequitable our healthcare system is but those do have to fight against these other forces, which are very, very powerful. And so it's hard to be optimistic in the face of what people in healthcare, I think, have come to believe is their rightly earnings and revenues, that change can happen without impacting those. So what's next for you besides going back to your podcast? Well, I've got this book tour, which is a virtual book tour, but loads of fun. And I am back to see Lana, who you know very well. Yeah. Says hello. Um, we're empty nesters now. And, you know, I've got a lot of projects. They include this nonprofit that I helped start and they include um, investments that I make in underserved communities where we focus on fighting against health inequities. And I'll continue to be involved in the political scene and the media scene to the extent that there's things that people need me for. And so I'm continuing to be involved in helping with the pandemic, with the White House and so forth. Well, get some rest. Say hi to Lana. Say hi to the kids. Thank you for joining us, Andy Slavitt. Thank you, Julie. It's so great to talk to you. Okay, we're back, and it's time for our extra credit segment where we recommend a story we read this week we think you should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org. Rachel, why don't you go first this week? All right. Uh, my extra credit um, is actually um, from Kaiser Health News, written by Jay Hancock. The headline is In Alleged Healthcare Money Grab nation's largest hospital chain cashes in on trauma centers. I just think it was a really powerful data analysis showing kind of the, the tactics that for-profit hospital chains use to capitalize on these quote-unquote activation fees for these like really specialized teams that, you know, it's certainly helpful to have on hand if you need them, but if you end up not needing them, and there's, I think, some really interesting conflicts um, that Jay explores about the screening processes, who actually needs these teams versus who gets charged for them. So yeah, I think it was just a great exploration of another front on the healthcare cost battle, just because like, I think there's been this surprise billing conversation and that doesn't fix a lot of these problems that, you know, we're still seeing in terms of patients' liability for things they don't really have control over. There's a lot of money being made in healthcare that's not all necessarily in providing care to patients. Mel? 
Mine this week is a little bit of a twofer. So the New York Times had a story. Um, many post-COVID patients are experiencing new medical problems, study finds by Pam Bellick. And it, you know, looked at this study that found about a quarter of people after recovering from their initial acute COVID-19 battle, you know, are experiencing long COVID and experiencing just a really wide range of symptoms that, you know, are developing afterwards. It might be, you know, additional challenges with taste and smells to, you know, more serious mental health or heart palpitations issues. And then I wrote the same day about the new CDC guidance that came out about treating long COVID that really looked at, you know, guidance for physicians who are getting these patients who, you know, are coming in and saying, I'm having this long COVID thing and doctors just don't know a lot about it. So it kind of gave initial clinical guidance for saying, you don't necessarily have to start with a ton of testing, treat wellness, and trying to help these people of which there seem to be just more and more who are really experiencing long COVID after their initial illness. Joanne? I'm doing a slightly unconventional um, extra credit. I'm doing a combination of a Twitter feed and a three-year-old story. Nick Bagley, who's a professor of law at University of Michigan, who's a real go-to person on health law. Um, His Twitter handle is Nicholas underscore Bagley, um, B-A-G-L-E-Y. But in addition to him being like such a real-time great explainer on days like yesterday, he also wrote a story in The Atlantic in, I think it was 2018. It's really worth going back and looking. It said, the Texas challengers to Obamacare have no standing. And, And like, you know, he was right. It's an interesting retrospective how well he saw what was coming. Yes, he laid out the entire thing. I think we all owe a a thanks to Nick, who's been on the podcast, at his ability to explain to us a lot of these very technical legal things. Yeah, and I think pre-pandemic, we've been a little bit more somber during the pandemic, obviously, but when we were a little jokier, I mean, I think we stole crazy pants from him. Yes, we did. (laughs) All right. Well, my story is from Politico magazine. It's called How the Anti-Abortion Movement Used the Progressive Playbook to Chip Away at Roe v. Wade by Mary Ziegler and Robert Tsai, both law professors. I guess law professor extra credit week. Um, I'm not positive I buy this whole theory, but their argument is that anti-abortion forces copied the strategies of advocates who worked on civil rights, gay marriage, and abortion rights. It details how those who oppose abortion used those previous playbooks to pursue both power and change at the state and local level, basically changing the situation on the ground to give the high court room to say, hey, the situation on the ground has now changed. There is now, of course, a better chance than not that the court next year will roll back or entirely overturn Roe v. Wade. The big question then is what will be the impact of the backlash to the backlash? Anyway, it's a really interesting story and you should read it. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who still manages to make us all sound good. And also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We'll try to do another listener question episode this summer. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Joanne. At Joanne Kennan. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.